This is Africa Digest. Your time is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumelele Zondi. Good evening and welcome to the program. We are broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 Mr. Band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. In studio with me is Asanda Mazzaunyane, there's also Wissanda Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Research sends a chilling warning to South Africa's governing party. The UN mission in the DRC says it is difficult to clearly categorize the group that's committing mass killings in the Beni territory. In economics, Zambia plans to control expenditure and take measures to boost economic growth. And in sports, Springbok coach Alistair Gutierrez names his team for the rugby championship opener against Argentina. Here's Asanda Matawanyane with your news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. South Sudan's former rebel leader and ex-Vice President Riek Macha has escaped to the capital of Democratic Republic of Congo following violent clashes last month, according to an official. An earlier statement from Macha's SPLMIO party said the leader had been evacuated to a safe country within the region without naming the country. Macha is also reported to be planning a media briefing on the evacuation for Friday. Civil war broke out in South Sudan in December 2013 when President Salva Kiir accused Macha, then his deputy, of plotting a coup. The fighting has split the world's newest country along ethnic lines and driven it to the brink of collapse. The South African government is ready to pay out compensation to victims of a 2012 police shooting that left 34 mine workers dead and dozens wounded, according to the presidency. The miners were gunned down after police were deployed to break up a wildcat strike that had turned violent at the Lonmin-owned Marigana Platinum Mine in the country's northwest province in August 2012. Last year, families of the victims lodged compensation claims against the government, listing a total of 326 dependents as having been affected by the violence. The Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein, South Africa, has reserved judgment in the case of convicted murderers, former Nigerian Olympian Ambrose Monye and Andre Khos. The two are appealing the North Gauteng High Court ruling after they were handed live sentences for the contract murder of Chanel Henning. Henning was shot and killed after dropping off his son at a crash in Pretoria in 2011. The appellant's advocate, Johan van Veek, argued that his clients should be given a lesser sentence. Monye and Khos only confessed their role in the young mother's contract killing after they were convicted. Former policeman Rie Hardas Duplessis and his friend Velem Pieters later pleaded guilty to the murder and were each sentenced to 18 years imprisonment. Her husband Nico Hienning was arrested in December 2013 shortly after Hose testified that Nico had offered him one million rand to murder his estranged wife. A constitutional court decision on the interstate success 
Succession Act creates practical problems and is open to abuse. That's one of the arguments presented by a South African man who is trying to block his late brother's same-sex partner from claiming his estate. The court has been asked to find that a decision which allowed same-sex partners to inherit from each other in cases where there was no will could lead to bogus claims. The applicant's lawyer, Johannes Bergentain. So two brothers can come and say, we are same-sex partners living together, or a father and a son could have done so. There were simply no limitations on who could have claimed to be entitled to inherit interstate in terms of the Gory versus Clover judgment. That posed very serious legal and practical problems. Finally, fans of African contemporary art can look forward to the annual F&B Joburg Art Fair next month in South Africa. This year, the focus will be on East Africa. The F&B Joburg Art Fair hosts a series of non-profit projects and events to create a holistic view of art in Africa. Mandla Svego from organizing company ArtLogic explains. What's special about it is that it's obviously the lead-up to our 10th anniversary for us. And the big focus this year is on East Africa. We also have quite a number of galleries that are exhibiting at the fair. This year, we really have um, an exciting lineup. Um, we're very excited. Um, we have um, over 80 exhibitions within six categories. And um, we also have um, 17 countries that are participating. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Your time is 17.05 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. The voice on Channel Africa, rather, the voice of the African Renaissance. Asanda Matsonyana, thank you very much for that update. Researchers have warned the National Cong- the African National Congress in South Africa that the longer South African President Jacob Zuma stays in power, the more costly it could be for the party. University of Johannesburg researchers say anecdotal evidence that emerged shows that President Jacob Zuma has lost favor with ANC voters. The research by the university's Center for Social Change looked into the profile of voters in four provinces on election day. It shows that the ANC is not popular with young people and that what happens in the next election will be determined by what the ANC does with President Jacob Zuma. Angela Bulawana reports. And even among some of the ANC supporters, um, they were emphasising this issue, which we always picked up on before, that the ANC is the party of Mandela. Now that's double-edged. It's a reason why people still vote for the ANC, particularly why older people vote for the ANC. But people are also saying we're not voting for the party of Zuma. Um, and indeed, uh, a number of people were saying that they were voting for other parties because they didn't want Zuma. And even where people were voting for the ANC, they didn't want, want Zuma. President Jacob Zuma was not part of the questionnaire, but his name kept cropping up. Professor Peter Alexandra says the views on Zuma were unsolicited. They asked 4,000 people from 10 townships in four provinces and one university and 21 voting stations to fill out questionnaires to understand voting patterns in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, employment status, government provision and protest activity. Alexandra says although the issue on President Zuma was anecdotal, how long he stays in power will determine the performance of the ANC in the next elections. So my own interpretation of, of 
of this qualitative data from the field workers is that one of the factors that will affect whether the ANC uh, can pick up votes at its loss this time will be determined by the by the length of time that uh, President Zuma remains um, president of the country. The statistics paint an interesting picture. The NC attracts more female voters, while the EFF attracts male voters. The DA attracts a similar ratio of both sexes. Ethnicity also contributes to choosing who to support, with some voters going for a leader because he's part of the ethnic group, except for the DA, which is more popular with colored and white people. The EFF attracts employed people, while the ANC attracts unemployed people. Shag Dwellers prefer EFF, while those from RDP homes and those who receive social grants prefer the ANC. The youth vote, however, belongs to the EFF and the DA. The, the, the pattern there for the EFF on the red bars, you'll see that they peak amongst the 35 to 39-year-olds rather than amongst the younger voters. So it's, it's possible that the DA is a little bit more successful amongst the youngest of the voters, but to some degree that's, um, that's uh, because of the sample that we've got here. Quite a lot of those EFF voters come from Marikana, so they're workers, and quite a lot of the DA voters are, are students. There's a bit of a bias there in terms of the samples. And I think the big message to take away from here um, is that the ANC are likely to have uh, problems in the future um, because their base of support is getting older and older. The research also showed that 14% of the voters changed their votes from 2014. It also showed that EFF voters were more likely to have participated in a protest. Although the researchers say the results are not nationally representative, they argue that they are helpful in terms of analyzing the voting patterns of the working class, particularly for the much-anticipated 2019 national election. And the report is by our reporter there, Angela Bolowana. The United Nations Secretary General will launch an independent investigation to determine the circumstances around which peacekeepers in South Sudan failed to respond adequately to an attack on a Juba hotel compound in which a journalist was killed and several civilians raped. This is after a media report emerged that South Sudanese troops gang raped, beat and robbed eight workers in July and on July the 11th at the Terrain Hotel, a popular gathering for expatriates in the national in the nation's capital the united nations chief has expressed his alarm as the preliminary findings of a fact-finding investigation with the reports emerging that calls for help from the united nations went unheeded for hours despite blue helmets being less than a kilometer away here's show and price peace The United Nations launched a fact-finding mission in the immediate aftermath of last month's re-escalation in the conflict in which several peacekeepers were killed. But as new details emerged this week in the media, it forced the UN's hand. The Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq. The Secretary-General is alarmed by the preliminary findings of a fact-finding investigation by the United Nations mission in South Sudan into the attack on Hotel Terrain in Juba on 11th of July in which one person was killed and several civilians were raped and brutally beaten by men in uniform. The Secretary-General is also concerned about allegations that UNMIS did not respond appropriately to prevent this and other grave cases of sexual violence committed in Juba. Due to the gravity of these incidents, related allegations, and the preliminary findings by UNMIS, the Secretary-General has decided to launch an independent special investigation.
According to those media reports quoting several witnesses, South Sudanese troops targeted an area popular with foreigners on July 11th, fresh from winning a battle with opposition forces that has since seen former First Vice President Riek Mashar leave the capital. According to witnesses, they allegedly shot dead a local journalist while forcing people to watch. They raped several foreign women singling out Americans while beating, robbing and performing mock executions on terrified people. Listen to my exchange with the deputy spokesperson. Well, at this stage, we're still gathering facts. Uh, some, Some of the information that we've received... Uh, helped contribute to the decision to set up this special investigation. But uh, in any case, the fact-finding investigation uh, is being completed, and we expect to receive it this week, and then it'll, and then it'll be fed into the work of the special investigation. Yeah, but what are some of those facts? I mean, what have, has this investigation so far uncovered? What does the UN know? Why, share I mean, that information Well, with you, us. you'll have seen what the statement is. We, we don't have any further details to share at this stage while the process continues. But th- those facts are, are, like I said, are going to be uh, examined as well by the special investigation. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have both this week lamented a lack of tangible progress in setting up an AU hybrid court to investigate and prosecute crimes committed during the civil war. While the UN has announced that food rations for some 200,000 South Sudanese refugees in Uganda will be halved starting this week due to a lack of funding. The humanitarian response to South Sudanese refugees in Uganda was already severely underfunded before the latest outbreak of violence in Juba, which has since prompted more than 70,000 people to cross the border into Uganda. New arrivals have spoken of armed groups operating across various parts of South Sudan, attacking villages, burning down houses, murdering civilians, sexually assaulting women and girls, and forcibly recruiting young men and boys into their ranks. The personnel making up the Special Investigation Unit are expected to be announced later this week. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.15 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pamela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, according to the United Nations Human Rights Office, OHCR, 
Conflicting allegations of uh, serious violations in Kashmir show the need for independent observers to be allowed to access the disputed region. India and Pakistan both administer territory in Kashmir, which has been experiencing violent clashes between security forces and protesters since the death of a separatist leader in early July. United Nations Human Rights Chief Zaid Arad al-Hussein has expressed regret to that request to access Indian-administered Jammu and Kashmir and Pakistan-administered Kashmir have not been granted. Alpha Diallo has been speaking to Gianni Magazzini, a senior official with the OHCHR in Geneva. It was the first time since the subcontinent's independence 70 years ago an Indian Prime Minister offered public support to the long-running insurgency in the western Pakistani province. And one of Modi's trusted cabinet colleagues, Jitendra Singh, said the government was strongly behind Modi. Those from Islamabad who talk of liberating Jammu and Kashmir, which is part of Indian state, they would rather do well to look back at their backyard. And as they say, they want to have an independence day with the liberation of Kashmir Valley. Perhaps they have forgotten that Balochistan has already celebrated its Independence Day on the 11th of August. And following that, there was such a merciless operation that there is still an atmosphere of mourning going on in Balochistan. On the other hand, what is happening in Kashmir Valley is more or less an absolute instigation and sponsorship as a part of a cross-border terrorism being exported from Pakistan soil. The Indian Prime Minister has also ordered his government to fire up a global campaign against Pakistan. But former Foreign Minister Salman Kurshid argued India should mind its own business. Baluchistan is a different thing from any part of Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Our concern, our right and our entitlement is over Jammu and Kashmir. And anybody who occupies Jammu and Kashmir or any part of Jammu and Kashmir, we have a right to complain, we have a right to take it back from them. But for us to go and get in involved in Pakistan's internal matters, no matter how appropriate it may be in terms of human rights, in terms of political aspirations of people, is not our business. But the two countries made Kashmir their business as they fought two of their three wars over the region since their independence in 1947. But political analyst Aditi Mehta wondered whether Modi can afford to walk the talk. What you do next? Okay, you raise this issue from the Red Fort, the whole nation is involved now. Pakistani nation is involved now. What do you do next? Can you do anything about this? Can you redraw the maps? Can two nuclear armed nations decide the destiny on the basis of further aggression? So what next? Pakistan, on the other hand, accuses India of rights abuses in its zone of divided Kashmir, where a curfew was in place for the 37th day on Tuesday. A day earlier, eight soldiers were hurt and two militants killed in a clash even as Modi spoke. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says it is difficult to clearly categorize the group that's committing mass killings in the Beni territory in the eastern part of the country. Monusco's statement comes after the Congolese government described as jihadist the terrorist the killing that left more than 64 people dead last weekend in Ruangoma in the North Kivu province, Jean-Noël Bamwenze. The massacre in which at least 36 people have been killed in Rwangoma in the territory of Beni brings it to more than 600 the number of people who have been killed in the area since 2014. 
This country's authorities attribute the attacks to the Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces, a very sad situation that occurred although the government has previously sought to alert the world to the jihadist threat here, according to the government spokesperson Lambert Mende. We have uh, lost 22 men and uh, 14 women in this attack that took something like 30 minutes only. We have already warned the international community many times during the ICGRL meeting about uh, the nature of that uh, terrorist offensive against our country, telling them often that those are jihadists that nobody came uh, to give us assistance and uh, the Congolese army is still the only one caring for that situation. We think that uh, the consequences of uh, this indifference from the international community is something very sad because the consequences of this uh, terrorist action are the same than the one we are witnessing in Nigeria, in Cameroon, in Mali and even in Belgium, in France or United States. So why are people remaining indifferent towards the jihadist threat against the Democratic Republic of the Congo? We think that it is a global threat that must be taken as such. The allied democratic forces, well known as ADF rebels, have been accused of human rights abuses in the eastern DRC since more than two decades now. The National Army believes last Saturday's massacre has been committed in revenge for military operations in the area. According to the spokesperson of the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, FARDC, the massacre has been committed after the allied democratic forces were seriously defeated by the National Army. General Richard Kasonga. Our goal is zero ADF on the Congolese territory, and since we have discovered and uh, destroyed their underground homes, we are going to boost and intensify deeply our operations so that we can reach that goal, zero ADF on the Congolese territory. Both the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the international community have done efforts for security in the area, but really, the Beni territory has remained under violence since the last three years. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Your time is 17.22 Central African time. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Although South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says achievements of the women of 1956 have translated to the opening up of the leadership space for women, citizens have conflicted those reports as to whether or not government is doing enough to empower women. More than 20,000 women marched to the seats of government at the union buildings to register their rejection of white supremacy and institutionalized racism on the 9th of August 60 years ago as Women's Month nears to an end. Channel Africa took to the streets to hear what this commemoration means for them.
The South African government says Women's Month is dedicated to creating an environment to foster equal participation of women in the country. Channel Africa took to the streets to hear the thoughts of ordinary South Africans on what they had to say about Women's Month as it is nearing its end. Some believe it is important to commemorate such historic milestones and others went on to say that they had been inspired throughout the month. It's important just because they're showing that they're still remembering what happened on that day. Women were fighting for the freedom that we have. I see it is important to celebrate uh, Women's Month because women are empowering us as men and they take good care of us. And for me this month I've seen a lot of change because uh, I was inspired actually. More women are driving, more women are buying houses. Yes, I feel very inspired because I've seen so many stories um, coming out about successful women and how women are changing the world. So yes, it has been a successful month for women because I'm very happy and I feel so inspired. I also want to change a lot of things. I feel women play a big role in our lives and everyone's world actually. Um, they should make women more important, not just on Women's Month. Asked about whether the South African government has done enough to empower women and to provide platforms for them to actively participate in the economy of the country, this is what some of them had to say. Women now have even places they can go to to seek help in cases of abuse or stuff like that. But also it would be nice if they would have like maybe campaigning in rural areas so that women know that they have such things available for them. Government is not doing anything for me. Yeah. Or for any women around me that I know. Not that advantages grants, obviously, of which it gets done in the States as well. So it's not something hilarious or, you know, mm. something wow. It, it had to be done. That's the only positive about mm. the government doing something to women. But as to empowering them, I have no idea. Our government, yo, no, I don't think so. The main focus is on men only. I think they must at least... Bapushe, Basadi, and empower them more. Give them a chance. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Khomozo Mupulani in Johannesburg. Inadequate and unpredictable rainfall in parts of the coastal region of Kenya pose a major threat to food production and food security in the country. It's a region where less than 10% of rural women own land either through inheritance or purchase. Most women in this region find themselves in the bondage of a patriarchal mindset with less ability to own land, especially when their spouses die. Sometimes they are also obliged to inherit the land with no valid land title deed. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Mombasa. Margaret Olang has been a farmer for more than 80 years in Mtwapa area, some approximately 16 kilometers northeast of Mombasa. The aged woman admits that she has always depended on rainwater for her crops production due to climate variability. I'm just doing from the manure I get from my cow my chicken, that is where I help myself with what I have. I don't use irrigation because sometimes we are having water problem. It cannot be enough for me to use it. So I'm just using rainwater. Miss Bag always I get 100, 120, 130. It depends. Like this year, I don't think I'm going to get more than 100 because the rain, it is not favor farmer this year. 
for Olang, her farming activities majorly depend on fertilizers made from cow dung and chicken droppings. I'm just doing from the manure I get from my cow, my chicken. That is where I help myself with what I have. Unlike Olang, many women in the region remain subjected to customary practices and traditions denying them the privilege of owning, inheriting or even disposing land. Najib Shamsan, an officer at the Kenya Land Alliance, says the national land policy entrenched in the Kenyan constitution has clauses that gives women rights to own land together with their spouses. This time round, National Lands Policy says all lands in Kenya will have a co-ownership that gives both women and men equal rights to acquire land title deeds with their partners. Traditions and culture in this region have led most women not to benefit or even own their own land. Less than 10% of women in rural areas are not involved in anything doing with land, and if she owns land, then she must have bought it. And in case she inherited it, she will only have a small portion of the land. According to Aga Kimwangi, a public information and media officer at the United Nations Conventions to Combat Desertification, women play a major role in food production. A lot of the clearing is done by the men, but a lot of the farming is done by the women, whether it's for subsistence production or for market produce. So what you want to do is to make sure that it's re you're replenishing the land. But a lot of women cannot purchase fertilizer because it is not subsidized. So then they just leave the land. So over time, that land gets degraded from two areas, soil erosion and the nutrient side of things. Wagaki adds that the Kenyan government has involved women in issues on sustainable land management. What the government has tried to do is to find ways to address those issues. For instance, a bank called KREP. KREP is not a bank like any other bank. They're allowed to give loans, but they are not subject to the same taxation as other banks. Maybe it has changed because it has changed the status. But in the past, it mostly loaned to women who did not have titles because then it meant if they got a little loan, they could buy the fertilizer they needed to replenish their land. So the government allowed the existence of an entity that is a bank without the rules that are subjected to the other banks. But KREP could only loan to that category of people. You and I could not bank there. Now I see we can bank there. The question is, what are the implications? A lot of governments do target women. The question is whether the way they are targeting it is linked to the way they are degrading, to their role in degradation, and to their role in restoring the land. That was the public information and media officer at United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, Wagaki Mwangi. And I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. And it's time for your news headlines with Asanda Matsaonyane. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. South Sudan's former rebel leader and ex-Vice President Riek Macha escapes to the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo following violent clashes. The South African government is ready to pay out compensation to victims of the 2012 Marikana police shooting that left 34 mine workers dead and dozens wounded. And fans of African contemporary art can look forward to the annual F&B Joburg Art Fair next month in South Africa. Those are your news headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest.
It's 17.30 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You can send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you want to follow us on Twitter, find us on Channel Africa One. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, South Africa's trade union, the Chemical Energy Paper Printing Wood and Allied Workers Union, Sepao, says it expects all its members in the petroleum industry to return to work by Monday. This follows their three-week strike, which ended yesterday. Sepal, which represents more than 15,000 workers, met with the employer yesterday to sign a two-year wage deal. Under the agreement, workers will receive a 7% salary increase in the first year instead of the 9% they had initially demanded. To elaborate more on this deal, we're joined on the line now by Sepal's chief negotiator, Jerry Ngorsi. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Jerry. Hello, hello, good afternoon. Now, uh, Jerry, why did you decide to agree on the 7% as opposed to the 9% you were asking for? If you remember, uh, the the CCMA intervened in the whole process. Uh, The the, the intervention by the CCMA to mediate the dispute started on the 12th of August. And uh, we met again past Monday and even yesterday. What really happened was that in, 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 during the discussion, there were other issues that were agreed upon in terms of t- how we take them forward. And therefore, the CCMA came up with a recommendation on Monday to say, look, they, this is the way they see to resolve this matter. We then took a recommendation to our members, different structures, for them to look into it and discuss. And our members shown that the response was that they will accept uh, the recommendation from the Commission for Mediation and Arbitration. And you are saying that they need to return to work by Monday. Um, and what if there are some who say, well, they're not quite happy? Um, have you considered that? If they? What if there are some who say they're not returning to, mon- uh, to work on Monday? Have you considered that and what's going to happen to those? Look, uh, the agreement that we had in terms of uh, return to work with the NPA was that uh, workers will start to return to work as from uh, yesterday. But we came to to the also to say that look, given the fact uh, that during a strike, you know, some workers decide to go home. I mean, most of workers are not from the urban areas where they stay. Some decide to go home, and therefore that is why we said, look, uh, we, we want to give them grace. Because they might not be aware that there's an agreement that has been reached because they are far away. Therefore, to give them that leeway and, 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 and we agreed, therefore, that the, the last uh, person to report or group people to report will be Monday. So that will, if anything, therefore, happens, maybe some uh, have not returned, I think it will be looked into the merit and the reasons why those people could not return on a Monday. Mm. Um, is there any worry that some of those that do return to work on, on Monday might be victimized by the employer? No, no, no. Look, we what we have said is that even if it, that is the Monday, the return date, 
if they are reasons, I think people will have uh, reasons. If there are proper reasons for them not to have, not to have uh, returned by Monday, that issue will have to be discussed internally with the internal uh, local organizers from, from the union with that particular or particular companies. As a union, you... it should not. It should not lead. It should not lead to any discipline. To, to, to discipline. Yes. Because there might be a valid reasons why those people might not have returned by Monday. Yes, as a union, you had said that um, some of your members had lost a month's worth of wages. Um, was that ever resolved? Did they continue to lose that month's worth of wages? Can I get you there? I'm, I'm just missing you. All right. Um, as the strike was going on, um, as a union, you had said that some of your members had lost um, some wages because of the strike. Um, was that part of the deal or do they continue to lose those wages? No, I mean, that, that's normal. When you, when you go on strike, it's a no work, no pay. That's normal. There's nowhere where uh, when you, you are on strike, you get paid. I mean, that's normal. That's time in memorial. It has always been like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an issue that you raised when we spoke to you um, last time when the strike was going on, and you spoke about the victimization of those that were um, on strike, and as they were protest, as they were protesting rather outside um, some of the um, some of their places of work, you'd find that they. Um, they would be met by resistance and by a few threats as well. Um, did you ever resolve that? Um, and perhaps in order to curb it for future strikes um, or future methods of negotiation so that your members are not victimized in future? I wonder whether I heard you properly. Um, my, my way I am, I think it's not, it's not good. Uh, if I might have heard you, I, I'm saying... If you are talking about the the, the 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 provocation to members, I'm not sure that's what you're talking about. Yes, that's what we that's what you had mentioned last time when we spoke to you, and you said your members were being provoked oh, okay. as they were on strike. So what I'm asking is that have you spoken about that to the employer in order for you to curb that from happening in future when you are negotiating and when you are not happy about certain conditions that are taking place in the place of work? Yes, we've raised that. We raised that long before uh, uh, when it happened. We raised that with the employers and then told them that we do not uh, uh, expect them. This conduct, we really uh, uh, reject the conduct that has happened. Because even then, even then, they, all the companies have what we call ticketing rules that we agreed upon. So they were agreed upon, and in those ticketing rules, it's very clear what you can do and what you cannot do. But in this instance, we found this provocation from the employers, from the, uh, the underhand tactics that they were using in terms of the third-party people, from the private security forces, and we have raised that with them again to say, look, this conduct in future, it must never happen again because we have agreed on the rules to follow when we are when 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 we're in, in such a kind of a situation, mm, we have yeah. raised that strongly with them. Yes, you have raised it, and what did they say? Sorry, you have raised it, and so what did they say? What was their response when you no, raised no, it? No, their, their response. Their, you see, their response was they 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 respond as if they're not aware of this conduct. They, that that is the response that we're saying, and they said that 
they are going to raise it with their members. Where it happened, they are going to discuss it with their members, and we are going to discuss them further, because one of the issues uh, that was agreed yesterday was that the issue of the shift allowance, for instance, will have to go to, to a task team. And in that task team, this matter will further be, be engaged on. All right, and so definitely on Monday, that's the deadline. They need to return on Monday. Otherwise, explain to the union why they were not at work on Monday. Hello, come again, please. All right, um, I think we have to leave it there because we do have a bad line there, Jerry Ngossi, um, the chief negotiator at the Chemical Energy Paper Printing Wood and Allied Workers Union. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Author Abhijita Banerjee has worked in dozens of countries trying to better understand the economies of poverty. He argues that anti-poverty policies often fail because of inadequate understanding of the decisions poor people make. Banerjee participated in a seminar on sustainable economic development during the IMF World Bank Spring meetings. He explains why so little is known about a billion poor people in the world. Well, it's very expensive to collect data, to be honest. There's a billion people, but how many of us live next door to them? I mean, so you don't see them. They're, they're kind of mostly invisible, except often in their most extreme manifestations. So the you see these, the person who is you know begging in the street, and you see the person who's maybe made it out of poverty and tells his own story. And you know, I, I used to sell tea, and now I'm. X. But between those two extremes, you often don't encounter most of these people. They're not in your life. So it's not at all obvious that, that we have any way of intuitively understanding what's easy and difficult for people. I think we need data. We need to actually focus on the problem. I found it interesting in, in the foreword of your book, you say that uh, poverty is, is the biggest problem in the world. How is poverty the biggest problem in the world? Let's say that if you believe that your concept of welfare should be founded in the welfare of people as against religiosity or uh, beauty or uh, other things, if, I, if you think that the standards of living of people are the primary determinant of welfare, then I think it's obvious that that's where the biggest losses are. And you also speak a lot about poverty traps. In your opinion, do you think there are circumstances in which people or groups of people do, in fact, find themselves trapped in poverty? So there are two answers to that question. One is, do I believe it's true? I, see, I believe it's true. Do I have any very well-founded reason to believe it's true? Much harder question. I would say what the, the evidence on these interventions, which sort of help people today and see that, you know, Many years later, they're still richer, suggests that there's something like a trap, because if there weren't one, you would think that they would fall back. If it were the case that, you know, people are doomed to be who they are, and some people are just poor because they are unskilled or undisciplined or hardworking enough, then you would imagine that, you know, you couldn't get them out of poverty by doing something today. Because, you know, tomorrow they'll still be lazy and they'll still go back to wherever they belong. And I I think the evidence suggests that that's not true, that many people are in a situation where, given an opportunity, they would be in a different place.
So if people are given more opportunities, the more successful they may be at pulling themselves out of, of poverty. Sure. I mean, you know, it's, if you think you can identify a particular reason for a trap, which I think is not easy, but if you could, then it would be great because what, what in a sense, the interventions I was talking about just now, these are kind of very broad brush. They kind of give you training and they give you some money and they give you some, some assets and they give you all kinds of things and the hope is that one of them will stick. And if you, if you had a much better understanding of exactly what was sticking and you could identify, you know, for Joe it's, it's money but for Jane it's confidence, then you would give Jane confidence and Joe money and things would work better. You'd save resources. I'm less optimistic that we will get to that level of sophistication. So, and one shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. How important do you think money is when we're talking about aid and, and sustainable development? So, aid is a slightly tricky word there. I mean, because aid often is interpreted to mean foreign aid. Foreign aid, like aid sent by OECD countries to poor countries is a very small part of uh, social support, even in the developing world. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny part of it. Most money that's spent for social support is spent by local governments, local charities. All of these are bigger than aid. So let's define it to be money rather than aid. And money is very important. I think the idea that, that you could you know, help poor people without spending any money. That was the kind of the promise of microcredit, which is that there is essentially a matter of lubrication. And I think that turns out to be, I think, mostly false. So I would say lubrication is not a substitute for resources. Real resources count, you know, better run, better quality education, you know, more more assets for poor people. All of those things are Real, real money, and real money needs to be spent. And how effective are we at raising and distributing that money? So we we are not very good at raising the money. We're not very good at distributing the money. That said, with the money we have, we often give it away to the wrong people. So the first thing to fix would be to, you know, stop giving the subsidies to the rich. Um, which is a very large part of the subsidies. So if you actually did take a, manage to take away the subsidies for the rich, I think you have, would have lots of money for the poor. It just is very politically, it's difficult to get subsidies away from the rich. It's a, something of a, of a sad uh, leftover from, I think, the 70s and the 80s when that was the politically preferred instrument of transferring resources. That was Abhijit Banerjee, Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and author of Poor Economics, A Radical Rethinking of the Way to Fight Global Poverty. He was speaking to Bruce Edwards from the IMF. It's time for your economic news. Here's Rosanna Matebula.
Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. Africa's biggest uh, Coke bottler, Coca-Cola Beverages Africa, says it will rethink its spending plans in South Africa if Pretoria's proposed tax on sugary drinks gets the green light. In a bid to fight a growing obesity rate in the continent's most lucrative market for Coca-Cola and fast food chains in sub-Saharan Africa, the government has proposed a 20% tax on sugar-sweetened drinks under a plan that has delighted health campaigners and angered drink makers. Coca-Cola Beverages Africa was created uh, earlier this year through a combination of SAB Mila and Coca-Cola African Soft Drink Operations. The deal won an antitrust go-ahead on several conditions that included a commitment to spend 65 million US dollars to develop farmers and retailers. In Mali, the country collected 422 million US dollars in state revenue from mining companies last year owing to stagnant production and lower gold prices. This despite Mali exporting a record 70 tons of gold last year. Mali is the third biggest gold producer in Africa behind South Africa and Ghana and gold overwhelmingly dominates its mining sector itself about a quarter of government revenues. Gold producers including Rand Gold Resources and Anglo Gold Ashanti have operations in the country. Swedish-based car maker Volvo has agreed to a 500 billion US dollar alliance with Uber to develop self-driving cars. It is the latest move by traditional vehicle manufacturers to team up with a Silicon Valley firms seen as threats to their industry. The partnership will allow the Chinese-owned firm and ride-hailing service Uber to pull resources into initially developing autonomous driving capabilities of a Volvo's flagship XC90 SUV. Companies like Uber could make drastic savings on their biggest cost-paying drivers if they were able to incorporate self-driving cars into their fleets. And South African trade union Sapao says it expects all its members in the petroleum industry to return to work by Monday next week. This follows their three-week strike, which ended on Wednesday. Sepau, which represents more than 15,000 workers, met with the employer to sign a two-wage agreement. Under the deal, the workers will receive a 7% salary increase in the first year instead of 9% they had initially demanded. Sepau spokesperson Clement Chicha. We are happy to have reached an agreement in line with the proposal or recommendation of the CCMA commissioner which entails five key areas. The agreement will last for two years. And workers will be expected to be going back to work from the signing of agreement until on Monday. Zambia says it will control expenditure and take measures to boost economic growth. Lusaka and the IMF had reached a broad consensus on the key areas of an aid program for Zambia. The Southern African nation has been in talks with the global lender over a possible financial deal. Financial indicators now, the US dollar trading at 13.42, South African rands at 10.19, Botswana Pula and 9.95, Zambian Guacha. Also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.88 to the euro. Commodities gold, $1,305.2. Platinum, $1,126 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $49.70 per barrel. That's your economics news.
Thank you, Sunny Musibudi Makura has your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. And starting off with rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia has named his team for their rugby championship opener against Argentina, set for Nelspreet on Saturday afternoon. Julian um, Reading Lace will earn his first start for the box, while Brian Habana, Johan Husen, Opa Mohoje, as well as Lude Diaga will return to the side. Locke Diaga has recovered from a calf injury he sustained against Ireland back in June and takes over the number five. Jersey from Peter Spieth de Toy, who will provide cover from the bench. The third change in the pack sees the return um, to the starting lineup of Mohoje as replacement for Sia Kolosi, who recently underwent ankle surgery. Now, in the back division, Springbok record try scorer Brian Habana will return, uh, rather, will run out in his 118th test match after he was named as the left wing, while he has also been confirmed as a Springbok. Vice Captain. Now, kickoff at Mbombela Stadium in the Mpumalanga province of South Africa is scheduled for 5 past 5 Central African time. On to Olympic news, steeplechase legend Ezekiel Kimboy has lost the bronze medal he won at the Rio Olympics after he was disqualified for the event for line infringement. The Kenyan, who won the title at the 2004 Athens as well as the 2012 London Games, finished third behind compatriot Consilis Kibruto and American Evan um, Jagger in Wednesday's 3,000-meter steeplechase final. However, Frenchman Mahedine Mechese launched an official complaint after the race as he believed Kimboy stepped off the track on the fourth lap. And even though Kimboy finished more than three seconds ahead of Mechese, the International Association of Athletics Federations ruled in favor of the Frenchman. Despite Kenya's team manager, Joseph Kiget having filed an appeal, Mechese has now moved from fourth position into third following Kimboy's disqualification. Meanwhile, there will be no ball to Gatlin showdown in the 200-meter final in Rio. This after the main challenger to bolt over the past two years failed to qualify for the men's 200-meter final. Gatlin finished third in his heat and as a result failed to even qualify as one of the two fastest losers across the four semifinal heats. The only man likely to be the main challenger to bolt is Andre de Gresse of Canada who finished second to bolt in their semifinal heat. On to netball news, Bonguam Somi has been announced as the captain of South Africa's national netball team ahead of the quad series set to take place in Melbourne, Australia later this month. Somi will take over the reins from Marika Holthausen, who will be out for about eight months after she tore a ligament in her right knee at the recently concluded Spa National Championships in Durban. Somi says it is an honor to lead the national team and will not be looking at replacing um, rather at replacing Holton Hazen. Definitely, it is an honor. I know I cannot um, replace Marika. She's been a good captain for the side. And um, I think it's going to be the first time for me to vote virtual without her. Um, it's sad again um, for her not to be included. And for injury, we can only hope that it's, she's going to recover soon and come back. Uh, but again, yeah, anyone would um, really love to go and take this chance and um, do their best. I've been, I have been fortunate to be working closely with her, 
So I think I'll know exactly what to expect and um, what to do at this time. Carla Mostad will captain, or rather vice-captain the side. The Spa Proteas will depart for Australia this coming weekend. And finally, in football news, South Africa's National Under-17 team is en route to Tanzania for the second leg of the Africa Youth Championship qualifier. The second leg will be played at the 7,000-seater Azam Stadium in Dar es Salaam on Sunday afternoon, with nothing less but a victory as a, pre- uh, as a prerequisite following a one-all draw at home two weeks ago. The winner of the game will either play in a Namibia or Congo in the final round and coach Mulefe Nzeki says it is important that the uh, that his boys come back home with maximum points. Yes and no because uh, it's a new team every year if, 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 if you have to play for the qualifiers you will be working with new set of players and I think uh, it was the same pressure uh, that we experienced uh, when when we started uh, in 2014 so I think uh, the same pressure but the difference is um, I am better experienced now, having gone through the qualifiers and having played in the, in the World Cup. I know what is expected. It is just that for, for our players to be at the level where I am so that they can uh, execute whatever that we have planned for, consistently so, so that we can win uh, matches and then qualify for, for AYC and uh, for the World Cup. Zion Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's check out our stories. Research sends a chilling warning to South Africa's governing party. The UN mission in the DRC says it's difficult to clearly categorize the group that is committing mass killings in Beni. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, it's Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda, Maometin, Kapodusa, Fiso Macheco, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS plus 27796-957930. Tweet us, Channel Africa One. We leave you with Ubuntu Bam by Sipogas. <laughs>